Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Dialogue. Dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue. Dialogue journal. Dialogue. Dialogue. It's the 50th anniversary. Dialogue. Welcome to the Dialogue Podcast. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, and in this episode, we're excited to present Robin Scott Jensen, Associate Managing Historian for the Joseph Smith Papers and co-editor of the first four volumes in the Revelations and Translations series. Robin will give us a window into what he has learned about Joseph Smith's translation methods in his exploration of the Book of Abraham manuscripts. This is a fascinating topic. And I'm sure you'll find Robin's presentation fascinating as well. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll consider a Dialogue membership. Within the last year, we've made every article ever published by Dialogue free online to everyone. But to ensure the continued vitality of the premier Mormon Studies journal, we depend on the generosity of our donors. Please go online at dialoguejournal.com to visit our revamped website and consider the various membership options. And now to our podcast, which was recorded at a meeting of the Orange County miller Study Group on May 17, 2019. Tonight, we're privileged to hear from Robin Scott Jensen, who's Associate Managing Historian for the Joseph Smith Papers. Most of you know that the JSP is an incredibly comprehensive papers project, similar to those that have been undertaken for George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and other historical figures. It's one that has the goal of public publishing virtually every document that was ever created by Joseph Smith, or that he directed to be created, would include journals, revelations, transcriptions, discourses, minutes, business and legal records, and the sort. So it's quite a, quite a project that Robin has been involved with and for, for many years. Uh, they're a tremendous boon to researchers. They make hard-to-find documents easy to find, and not only that, they're transcribed and written out and very carefully done. You would be amazed at how much time these scholars take just to make sure that the word is the and not that, or because it can make a difference. And, and they get high-resolution copies, and they look very carefully. And you can be assured that what they produce is absolutely first class. Robin make is, sure Robin pays. <laughs> Robin is the uh, co-editor of the volume on the Book of Abraham and the Egyptian materials, which is what he's going to speak about this evening. It's really a fascinating subject for me maybe more so than almost any of the other ones, although I think that the journals are really, really interesting also. Rob has two MA degrees, one from BYU and one from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. He's been working on his PhD in history from the University of Utah and has finished whatever you need to do and not being a PhD, I'm not sure exactly what all that is, but it took a lot of time and effort. And so now we can call him Dr. Jensen. Now, also one that didn't stand up to introduce herself as a first-timer is Rob's wife, Emily, sitting over here. And in addition to, I just want to say a few words about her, because uh, in addition to co-raising their five children, Emily has irons in a lot of fires. I won't mention all of them, but she's very often quoted in the media on matters involving current LDS affairs or anything going on in the blog. Actually, you want to know, you want to ask Emily. Specifically, I'd like to mention that she is the web editor of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, 
And if you haven't visited the website for dialogue lately, you really should go because just within the last month or so, it's been all updated. It's absolutely beautiful. And now dialogue's content, everything that's been published by dialogue during the past 50 some years is available online and is free to anyone, including the most recent issues. And the recent one is women's experiences with the new changes in the temple ceremonies. And it's a really interesting issue. So I encourage you to go there. So now I'll give the floor to our speaker, Dr. Robin Scott Jensen, to tell us about the Book of Abraham and the Egyptian papers. Well, thank you for coming. Your attendance here means that you're interested, that you have questions, uh, maybe you have some answers, I'd love to hear. Um, I'd like to thank Morris and Don for their hosting this. Um, so a few things to say just before I kind of get into my more formal remarks. I'm not naive enough to think that uh, the Book of Abraham is uh, not controversial, <laughs> that there are a lot of questions uh, about this topic. Um, and I used to be naive to think that uh, maybe I could find all the answers. I've now realized that uh, studying the Book of Abraham raises a lot of questions as it does. In fact, it raises more questions than it does answers. But that doesn't mean that we can't talk about it, that we can't uh, try to discover some of these answers. Um, and the setup is more lecture style than I like. Um, so I hope that we can really have a good discussion um, after maybe a few of my more formal remarks. Uh, no questions um, are off limits. Well, within reason. I, uh, <laughs> no questions about the, the Book of Abraham and my work are off limits. So uh, a bit of context or a bit of history, personal history. I, you know, uh, being raised uh, a member of the church, you're taught not really to give confessions over the pulpit, but I'm going to break that and give, uh, give a confession. So... Having been raised in the church, there were times when in sacrament meeting, I was bored. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's tough to admit, but uh, you know, as a young kid, I uh, realized that uh, not everything said over the pulpit was interesting to me. So um, there was kind of that, when I was super young, my parents let me bring coloring books, which was great. I could entertain myself. And then when I was old enough, late teens, I actually found that maybe I should mature and start listening and I could get something out of it. There was kind of that time period though, when I was too old to bring coloring books from home and too young to figure out that I needed to listen to things, where I just was bored. And so of course, my only option was to pull out the books that I had brought with me and that was a set of scriptures. And as a bored preteen, I open up to the pictures in the scriptures, and there's not many. Uh, for those that for those that may have been in similar situations to me, there are those kind of church history and biblical pictures. There are the maps. I was really desperate to look at some illustrations, so I was looking at the maps. But then, of course, there was also the uh, facsimiles from the Book of Abraham, um, and I looked at them quite a bit as a young person growing up in the church. So I grew up, I guess you could say, being familiar with the Book of Abraham, having a certain level of familiarity with what the Book of Abraham contained.
But that started with looking at the facsimiles, looking at the uh, um, illustrations, essentially, from the, from the papyri. So as I grew up, I became more familiar with the actual text. I started reading the Book of Abraham. I started uh, doing a little bit of research. And I realized quickly that looking at the pictures doesn't tell the whole story. So I became a little bit more familiar with Book of Abraham as I read the images. And yet, for those that were raised in the church, looking at this image of the actual papyri of the facsimile, there's a certain level of unfamiliarity as well. That the closer you look at the Book of Abraham, you think that you're familiar with the topic, but then the more research you do, the more um, uh, understanding that you develop, the more um, you press into things, you realize, you know, there's something about this that I wasn't quite as familiar with as I thought. So this does not look like what's in our modern scriptures. This papyri has, of course, a big chunk missing in the middle, on the left a little bit, uh, down below. Uh, but this is this was the papyri. This is what uh, the original looks like. So I want to kind of formulate my discussion today around these two concepts of familiarity and unfamiliarity. I think we're all familiar with aspects of the Book of Abraham. There's all certain things, uh, there, there, are, there are certain things about the Book of Abraham that I think we're all familiar with. Just being members of the church, being uh, interested in the topic, um, we inherit certain, uh, um, we accumulate knowledge about the Book of Abraham. But there are also times when you look a little bit more closely and you realize this isn't quite as familiar as I thought it was. In other words, we should, when we approach the book of Abraham, open ourselves up to learning new things. And maybe even discarding some of the assumptions that we had about the book of Abraham. Now I've been careful uh, in talking to people that dismantling assumptions about things is different than dismantling testimonies about that same thing. Uh, we have all gathered assumptions about the book of Abraham. We also, uh, members of the church, have gained testimonies of the Book of Abraham. And I hope that things that I say today might clarify or help us with some of our assumptions, but uh, that we can uh, gain a better appreciation for the Book of Abraham as scripture, scripture for the church as a whole. All right, the very first thing I want to talk about is translation. If we're taking this model of familiar and unfamiliar, translation is, I, I would argue, the Thing to look at very first. When we say that Joseph Smith translated the book of Abraham, if I said that to a non-member, they would think one thing. Um, but as someone who has looked at Joseph Smith's scriptural production, his revelations and translations, translating, Joseph Smith did not translate in the standard way. I mean, we can even look to the Book of Mormon as an example. Modern scholars do not translate using seer stones. I know that's a shock, <laughs> but... Uh, Right from the beginning, Joseph Smith is doing work of translating different than what we would understand a, a scholarly translation to be. I could say more about that, but I think you get the point. Okay, a little bit first about the Joseph Smith Papers. The Joseph Smith Papers, as Morris talked about, is a documentary editing uh, project. When I say that I'm a documentary editor, that does not mean that I'm uh, editing visual documentary movies. Um, I love watching documentaries, but uh, documentary editor is something different. Um, scholars are uh, 
maybe this is a dirty secret that scholars like to keep hidden. Scholars are notoriously lazy when they can be. Uh, in other words, we, uh, and I include myself, if we don't have to travel to archives and dig into uh, a lot of primary sources and read old handwriting, um, we don't necessarily do that. Although there's nothing more satisfying than going to an archive and reading primary sources for me. <laughs> but uh, if there is a published source of primary sources, scholars will use that. If there are digitized sources online, scholars will use that. Uh, if there is a published volume of primary sources, um, we will use that. In fact, that reminds me. This is the volume that I'm talking about, the Joseph Smith Papers, Volume 4. I'm just going to pass this around so you can kind of get a sense of what it looks like, um, the look and feel. Um, and as you're looking at that, or if you've got questions, we can talk about it later. So the Joseph Smith Papers is, uh, had its origin, um, one of its origins, with Dean Jesse, scholar, uh, worked at uh, the church uh, at BYU. He was looking at uh, various other documentary editions of uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and realized, you know, we need to do the same thing for Joseph Smith. So he began uh, in the 70s to accumulate sources. The very first thing about documentary editing is you have to gather all of the records into one spot. You can't publish them unless you know what you have. So Dean Jesse did a lot of this work. We inherited his work. Um, he uh, and began publishing uh, the Joseph Smith Papers. This uh, series is uh, scheduled to be done by 2022. Um, we, uh, I hope that that slide is current. 18 volumes in print now, that sounds about right. We've published 18 volumes. It's, it's, a, it's a large uh, project. Uh, we have a whole cadre of, uh, of historians, production editors that uh, assist in, in this work. We publish two volumes a year, which is a uh, uh, significant pace. Um, for those that haven't done documentary editing, it, it is a, a, a meticulous process. It's, it's very time-consuming, and uh, we're committed to get this done um, in the hands of scholars and members uh, as, as soon as possible. So the, oh, and I, I should say, the Joseph Papers is broken up into six different series published in print and online. Um, we have the journal series, the history series, the document series, the uh, Revelations and Translation series, the Administrative series, and the Legal series. Uh, we have published so far four volumes of the Revelations and Translation series. This is the fourth volume. We haven't necessarily gone in chronological order. Um, the first is Revelations. First and second volumes are Revelations, Doctrine and Covenants. The third volume was the Printer's Manuscript of the Book of Mormon. The fourth volume is the Book of Abraham. And the fifth volume will be the uh, original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. Um, Okay, so enough about the Joseph Smith Papers. Um, what, one of the things that uh, I've, every once in a while you have to pinch yourself to realize you're not dreaming, um, working for the Joseph Smith Papers really has been a dream um, come true for me. I, uh, like many other members of the church, I grew up knowing Joseph Smith, understanding who he was, what he meant for the members of the church. But having worked on the Joseph Smith Papers, I recognized that uh, he was um, this amazing figure, larger than life. But then at the same time, he's creating records, he's writing letters, he's writing in diaries, he's uh, um, interacting with individuals. And as I've come to understand Joseph Smith the prophet a little bit better, 
um, there's, again, this familiarity and unfamiliarity. Um, Joseph Smith uh, transcended um, many things around him. He, he, he received revelation. He uh, led the church. But he also got in a fist fight with his brother. He, uh, <laughs> he um, had an inkling for drinking alcohol. There, there, there are these things about Joseph Smith that we don't learn in Sunday school um, that, uh, again, I did not realize uh, growing up as a, as a member of the church. But it's been, uh, for me, this deeply rich, rewarding experience to learn a little bit more about Joseph Smith. Let me uh, talk a little bit about the papyri. So, in 1835, I, I'm hoping that most of us are familiar with the bare-bones history of the Book of Abraham. In 1835, Michael Chandler, uh, who was a traveling um, uh, purveyor of mummies and, and, and papyri, came to Kirtland, Ohio with some of his wares, uh, really the last of his collection. He was trying to sell it off. Joseph Smith, others were very interested in these mummies and papyri. Well, actually, Joseph Smith was really just interested in the papyri, but uh, Michael Chandler, who wanted to get out of the business, apparently said, you can have all of them or none of them. So Joseph Smith purchased four mummies, a uh, number of papyri, and Joseph Smith himself, you're going to get sick of this term by the end of the night, Joseph Smith himself was familiar and unfamiliar with Egyptian culture during his lifetime. Um, he grew up in a culture that uh, was very interested in the ancient Egyptian culture. This was... Uh, some people call uh, this time Egyptomania. In other words, so many individuals of Joseph Smith's, Joseph Smith's contemporaries were fascinated with ancient Egypt. Now this wasn't just a, all of a sudden people were wondering what's going on in Egypt. Um, there had been centuries long interest in ancient Egypt. In fact, I mean, some of the ancient Greek historians were interested in Egypt. And it makes a lot of sense, right? You travel in this desert, you see these massive pyramids, these uh, monumental uh, statues, and you wonder what civilization was able to create this. Um, th there was a significant uh, mystery surrounding Egypt. Um, there were uh, any number of individuals decades, centuries before Joseph Smith, who were writing about Egypt, uh, writing about uh, the culture, wondering about the uh, language, uh, wondering about the sculpture, uh, sculptures, and Joseph Smith uh, inherited this from his culture. Uh, the end of the uh, 18, uh, excuse me, end of the 1700s, Napoleon uh, invaded Egypt as part of the Napoleonic Wars, um, and this reignited this interest in Egypt. When he went to Egypt, he took with him both a military army, but also an army of scholars. Uh, there were a number of individuals who went to Egypt with Napoleon for the purpose of studying. Uh, he took historians and archeologists and um, literary people, anyone who was interested in, in this culture. And they started sending back all of these things back to Europe. Uh, papyri, uh, sculptures, artifacts. This was not really archaeology as we understand it. Uh, this was more pillaging. Um, but uh, it reignited this interest in Egypt. 
Um, museums loved it. They were gathering up all the stuff. As, if anyone's been to some of the better museums in Europe, you look at all these ancient artifacts that they have, and you wonder, where did they get all this stuff? Well, th this was the process. They essentially invaded some of these countries and sent them back. Um, once, uh, and people quickly realized that this was a money-making operation. Museums, uh, private collectors, uh, universities, they, they would purchase papyri, they would purchase mummies, they would purchase these things. And once the European market got saturated, then they realized, well, let's just send them over to America where we can make more money. Um, and so you've got individuals who are um, essentially, there's this market for uh, antiquities. For those not rich enough to buy a piece of ancient culture, you had touring, uh, pe people who would tour with mummies or, or papyri. In fact, uh, well, let me talk about this slide first. Uh, this is one um, image of what are mummy unwrapping parties, essentially. Uh, those are my terms. Uh, but you would gather a group of people into a room. You would unwrap a mummy because it's exciting what's going to be underneath it. Um, and it's just kind of this strange world, right? <laughs> talk about how the past is a foreign country. This, is, this was what they did. They loved doing this this sort of thing. It, it, it added to the um, interest, the mystique, the, the um, th there was one newspaper account that I read that uh, you have people um, interested in education, so teachers would take students and whatnot to these things, and, and there was a certain connection to humanity, human nature. You look at these mummies, they were thousands of years old, uh, and this one newspaper article says, what was this person like? What were they thinking? What did they believe in? So there's this connection to the past in this real world mummy, these artifacts. Um, as I mentioned, those not rich enough to buy things, they could um, pay a nickel or a dime or a quarter and see some of the mummies for their own, uh, with their own eyes. These are two broadsides announcing the uh, touring of mummies. Um, one of them, I don't remember which one, um, was printed less than 50 miles from Joseph Smith's home in Palmyra, New York. So Joseph Smith was certainly aware of these things. It's even possible that in his youth he was able to see uh, a traveling exhibit of mummies. So in other words, when the papyri, when the uh, mummies came into Kirtland, Ohio in 1835, Joseph Smith already had this context of interest, fascination with ancient Egypt. But there's also some unfamiliarity for Joseph Smith. He was not able to read the Egyptian language. Um, virtually no one was when, in 1835 when these mummies came in. Um, these two things, the, uh, these images, um, the one on the left is a, a title page of a book uh, written well before Joseph Smith's lifetime of uh, an Egyptian dictionary. The one on the right is uh, a monument with hieroglyphs on it, and someone has translated that into um, modern languages. Neither, neither of those two things were actual translations of the Egyptian language. In other words, you had many scholars before Joseph Smith who claimed to have understood 
the uh, Egyptian language. Able, they, they were claiming to be able to read it, uh, claiming to be able to translate it. Um, what actually happened is that uh, scholars were being scholars. They were um, making attempts at understanding this language, um, publishing it for others to critique, to see if they could uh, um, find holes in their theories. Um, that if we want to look at, I, I'm, I don't claim any expertise to ancient Egyptian, I'm not an Egyptologist, but if we want to find the birth of Egyptology, many go to Champollion, of course, he's the one that cracked the code, but there was a lot of scholarship beforehand that inched the profession along, that uh, very incrementally um, built up our understanding of what Egyptian was not, or what it was. Um, when we look at these types of efforts before Joseph Smith, before Champollion, many kind of poo-poo them, dismiss them, saying that they didn't do anything. Um, and there's some truth to that, um, but what I'm interested in, what other scholars have been interested in, is understanding how did these scholars project their own understanding onto their efforts of translating Egyptian? In other words, these types of works before Champollion captures the scholar's worldview rather than any ancient worldview. And that's okay. We can understand uh, the scholar's world by the efforts that they try to do, the questions that they ask. Um, some, of the, some of the theories that uh, some of these early scholars made were um, that hieroglyphs had a relationship with other ancient languages. That if you, if you knew one ancient language, you could kind of compare and contrast other ancient languages. So ancient Greek was important to know. Ancient, uh, Latin was important to know. Um, if you knew Hebrew, that was important because all of these ancient languages had a single origin. Um, and many people looked to Egyptian um, through other languages. If, if you could learn Chinese, you could learn hints about Egyptian. Um, in fact, it's not a coincidence that shortly after Joseph Smith purchased the, the papyri that he brought in a Hebrew scholar to help them teach or help them learn Hebrew. So that was one theory, that hieroglyphs had a relationship with other ancient languages. Another theory is that uh, if you had a single hieroglyph, you could derive multiple meanings from that hieroglyph, that, uh, um, th that it was kind of a symbol symbolic language, that uh, the hieroglyphs um, offered multiple meanings depended, depending on how you understood the writing system to be. There's also some people that uh, speculated that a single hieroglyph could have a uh, fairly dense meaning. In other words, that uh, if you wanted to translate a hieroglyph, you could uh, have sometimes um, multiple words, multiple sentences, maybe even whole meanings behind a single hieroglyph. Um, there's also a deep uh, interest, uh, deep mystery surrounding the hieroglyphs, that they contained uh, mysteries of, of, of life, philosophy, uh, truth, that were hidden, that they were deliberately put into hieroglyphs so that they could be um, uh, hidden from the masses, so to speak. Um, so, 
Because Joseph Smith was a product of his time, he inherited not only this unfamiliar, unfamiliarity of the ancient characters, he also inherited the desire to crack the code. Um, he wanted to participate um, in an effort to understand these ancient languages, not just Egyptian, but Hebrew, uh, and even the Adamic language. There's some evidence that he's um, toying around with, with the origin of all languages. Okay, um, so speaking of familiarity and unfamiliarity, Joseph Smith approached the papyri with his own efforts to translate. Um, I think that it is not responsible to look at the Book of Abraham without first going back to the Book of Mormon, because that sets the stage for Joseph Smith in understanding how translating worked. So here's an image, three different images, all church produced of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon. This is, I kind of do this deliberately, because we've had kind of in the past a little bit of corrective, course correction of how Joseph Smith translated. I think sometimes growing up we have either the left image or maybe sometimes the bottom right image. The bottom right image is actually from a primary um, youth doctrine and covenants manual which I find interesting. But more recently we've talked about seer stones and hats as a method of translating. I like to say that the Book of Mormon translation is not a single, there's, there's not a single mechanics of translating that Joseph Smith is pulling from a lot of different processes. So, when Joseph Smith approached the papyri, I would argue that he really had two components for translating, two ways in which he translated. The first was divine. He's the first one to say that his translating came through the gift and power of God. Um, when uh, there was a conference in the early church, Hiram Smith, his brother, stood up and said, Hey, Joseph, why don't you tell everyone how the Book of Mormon was translated? And Joseph Smith stood up and said, No, I'm not going to. All that you need to know is that I translated it through the gift and power of God. It's not known, or it's not necessary for the world to know how it happened. Um, Joseph Smith, in other words, was reticent to give the details of how the Book of Mormon was translated. Um, but he was forever telling people that it was through God's power. The way, however, that the divine manifested in the translation um, varied. I think that sentence made sense. <laughs> in other words, we have a lot of ways in which Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon. He's got the one on the left. Maybe he's receiving inspiration as he's studying the plates. The one on the bottom right, he's got divine help through the interpreters. The one on the upper right, he's got a seer stone in the hat. Also a divine way of, of translating. When we look to the Book of Mormon, you could even argue that the first ways in which he translated were in discussing the matter over with an angel. If you want, though, to narrow it, narrow it a little bit more, um, he's got, of course, the interpreters, the uh, seer stone. Um, there's been some scholarship recently that, rather, not recent scholarship, people have recognized that uh, he's using 
a Bible in the Book of Mormon translation, receiving inspiration. In other words, what the point I want to make, there's this whole spectrum of Joseph Smith drawing upon for divine translation. Um, and when he's translating the papyri, he has a whole different spectrum in which he can pull. But I talked about two components to translating, the first being the divine. The second is the intellect. Joseph Smith, when he's translating the Book of Mormon, one of the very first things he does is he copies out the characters. And he wants to engage scholars of the day. In fact, he copies the characters according to the source. He sends Martin Harris to either get it, translate, get it translated or confirm the translation that he already did from scholars in New York City. He's more than willing to open up translati translation for others. We, we see that particularly with Oliver Cowdery. We all know the story. Uh, Joseph Smith had his scribe, Oliver Cowdery, working on the Book of Mormon. Cowdery wants to have a go. He asks Joseph. Joseph asks the Lord. The revelation says, sure, have at it. I'm obviously paraphrasing. Um, jo uh, Oliver Cowdery tries. Um, it doesn't work. Joseph Smith receives another revelation asking, or he asks the Lord why it didn't work. And the Lord, through Joseph Smith, says, you thought that this would be an easy process. You thought that you'd just receive it. But you need to realize that you have to study this out in your mind. In other words, somehow the intellect is involved in divine translation. Joseph Smith, as I mentioned, had a Bible in front of him. He also... Uh, in, in the JST, he also had a biblical commentary in front of him. That's not how we often envision his translation, is consulting commentaries of the day. Um, but I would argue that the intellect is part of Joseph Smith's scripture production. All right, 1835, he gets the papyri. One of the very first things it seems that he does, and we have this from multiple sources, he copies out the characters. Similar to the Book of Mormon, he is studying it out in his mind. He's making copies of characters so that he can study them with his clerks and others. Here's an example of a, an alphabet document that he and his scribes produce. He's making, in other words, an attempt to make sense of the, of the hieroglyphs. So we have two kind of collection of documents or, or genres of documents the alphabet documents and the grammar and alphabet volume um, he's trying to make sense of the papyri just like earlier scholars these Egyptian language documents reveal more about Joseph Smith's own worldview than they do about the ancient world or about the Egyptian language, language itself We've had good scholarship um, talking about dissecting these documents and what they all mean. But as you can see from this image, we've got on the left characters and then names of those characters or the sound that they make and then some sort of explanation or definition of those characters. So um, this is where our own familiarity and unfamiliarity of the Book of Abraham comes into play. We've made assumptions about what Joseph Smith was doing. Um, I've inherited assumptions growing up in the church. 
um, about the book of Abraham. The narrative that I picked up, and I think that the majority of members of the church picked up, is that Joseph Smith was literally translating the papyri. That he looked at a character, and through some way he was able to translate that character and write it out. If it's not clear already, let me be clear now that based upon the alphabet documents, the other language, Egyptian language documents, Joseph Smith could not read Egyptian. Or rather, these grammar documents are not Egyptian grammars. They're not. Uh, Egyptologists would look at these and say, yeah, this is not, this doesn't work. This is not according to our understanding. Um, for instance, when offering the explanation on the vignettes or hypocephalus, now known as facsimiles 1, 2, and 3, he offered incorrect translations. Here's an explanation of facsimile 3. Number 2, King Pharaoh, whose name is given in the characters above his head. It's not actually what Egyptologists would say. When he and his clerks copied characters from the papyri into his alphabet documents, they failed to crack the code. Translation on the next page. That was not actual translation. The characters from the papyri that were associated with the blocks of text from the book of Abraham are not the actual translations of those characters. So we can see here, let me see if I can come around and show you. This is the text of the book of Abraham. Translation of the book of Abraham written by his own hand upon the papyri and found in the catacombs of Egypt. Whose handwriting is that? This is Phelps, W.W. Phelps. So we can see characters here on the left margin. And we have a number one and a number two. Now, other, others have interpreted this differently, but for me it looks pretty clear that this one is associated with this one. This two is associated with this two. In other words, this character is associated with this. This character is associated with this. In other words, it does not appear that Joseph Smith and the clerks that he was working with were actually translating the hieroglyphs. Oh, I didn't even need to... They're nice, <laughs> nicely circled right there. All right. Let's pause. This is unfamiliar territory, right? This is not how we usually hear this narrative. Here are two pages, two early pages from the Book of Abraham text. Written in 1835. And I'm almost certain that I didn't circle these, so... You can't read it, but it's too small. But this is text, the English here, main body, is the text of the Book of Abraham. Here along the left margin, again, are characters. If you look to the papyri that we have existing, at, held at the Church History Library, you can follow along where they are at in the actual papyri. In other words, so this is not Joseph Smith's handwriting, but this is early clerks who were working with Joseph Smith. The early clerks themselves associated with these characters with the Book of Abraham text. Where does that leave us? This is essentially the crux of the issue, right? This is a serious issue that has led many to conclude negative things about Joseph Smith. They point to this evidence and say, therefore we see that Joseph Smith was a fraud and a charlatan. Um, they point to the papyri and say, it's because of this that I know Joseph Smith was not a prophet. As a historian, however, I can tell you conclusively that you can't prove one way or the other about Joseph Smith's prophetichood from historical theory. Um, I did not take history classes 
History 101, in other words, doesn't outline how the Holy Ghost testifies to people about the truthfulness of prophets. The Holy Ghost does not leave a textual trail. Miraculous events do not create records in and of themselves. So what do members of the church do with information like this? This is where I'm going to take off my historian hat and put on my member of the church hat. For those gathered here that are not members of the church, just go along with me. For those that are members of the church, great. We can all relate to one another. I have to personally come to some sort of conclusion about the book of Abraham and what it means that Joseph Smith wasn't actually translating Egyptian. I've come to a certain way of interpreting this. I have a certain understanding of how this has worked. It doesn't work for everyone. It's a theory on my part. Um, and there are other scholars who have differing theories, and I um, respect and value their contribution, and um, like all good historical theories, when all's said and done and I find out that I'm wrong, someone proves that I'm wrong, I will be thrilled, because that means that scholarship has marched forward. The translation of the Book of Abraham has become more similar to <coughs> my own personal revelation than I have realized. This duality of revelation, the intellects and the divine, I think is an important thing to consider. So let me talk about a hypothetical situation. I've, I've used this before. There are some flaws in it. It doesn't work totally. But the hypothetical, I think, gets to this, gets to what I'm talking about. Let's envision, for instance, some parents that have a child who's been struggling with long-term health issues. They're, of course, loving parents. They want what's best for the child. They are members of the church, and so involving a miracle is not outside the realms of possibility. So, these parents, they pray, they seek a miracle, they seek inspiration, they seek revelation, but they're also studying. They're also studying it out in their minds. They're consulting medical professionals. They're maybe doing their own research. They're Googling symptoms, <laughs> landing on WebMD and going into a panic, which is always what happens to me. Um, following this period of studying, they receive revelation. They receive inspiration. They, I don't know, they're, they're called to, or, or they're told to call the specialist, or they're told to change diet in their child. Whatever it might be, they receive revelation, they do it, and it's a miracle. The child is healed. They have received revelation. Now, three years later, they come to realize that the medical professional that they consulted with was actually a quack, and he was, he was stripped of his medical license. They realized that the research that they had done was out of date, and that there was more up-to-date information. They realized that uh, the books that they had checked out were um, based upon faulty logic. Um, and the studying that they did, in other words, was not great. Does that invalidate the miracle? Does that take away from the inspiration that happened? No, I would think not. Uh, let me bring it out of the hypothetical back to history and it itself. We have talked a little bit in the last couple of years about seer stones, Joseph Smith's use of the seer stones as a way to translating. From my own personal perspective, 
Um, seer stones is not my, that's not how I receive revelation. In fact, I would go so far as to say, for me, seer stones are weird. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, <laughs> Any opposed? <laughs> seer stones, uh, I was not raised with the belief that seer stones would give me inspiration. When I was baptized at age eight, my parents did not give me a rock and explain to me the intricacies of folk magic. Um, I, I did not, uh, although I was raised in rural Utah, so I, I did have some experience with uh, hazel witches. So that, that's something else. <laughs> Joseph Smith's own views of the hieroglyphs were wrong, right? He did not, he did not have insight into ancient Egyptian language. And yet, as believing Latter-day Saints, we are taught that the Lord works through us according to our own understanding. The scripture, 2 Nephi 31.3, For the Lord giveth light unto the understanding. He speaketh unto men according to their language, unto their understanding. I would incorporate that into our cultural understanding. Um, Joseph Smith grew up with seer stones. He grew up with folk magic. He grew up with believing all sorts of things that we don't believe in anymore. But the Lord worked through his understanding. Okay, last point that I want to make. Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith did not, was not able to read Egyptian when all was said and done. And yet, he had, as I look at the sources, he had a deep belief that he actually did translate from the papyri. And I think this is really the, truck, the crux of the matter. As members of the church, can we go so far to say that the Lord can give revelation to people based upon faulty assumptions, and can that revelation be interpreted by the receptor of the revelation um, more than what the actual revelation was? It was very complicated. <laughs> Member of the church receives a revelation, A, B, and C. That's the revelation. Uh, they've received this amount. And then later in their life, they realize, you know what? I didn't receive A, B, and C as a revelation. I really only see, received B as a revelation. A and C were my own assumptions that I took to the revelatory process. Um, it is possible, in my mind, uh, allowing for divine intervention of translation, that Joseph Smith received revelation for the book of Abraham, but that he took certain assumptions about that process that weren't actually true. In other words, did Joseph Smith believe that he translated from the papyri? I think so. Does that invalidate, for him, the revelation itself? I don't think so. Let me end with a quote of Wilford Woodruff. He, he had the unique opportunity to um, print, assist in the publication of the Book of Abraham in Nauvoo. It was translated in both 1835 and 1842. Wilford Woodruff published in the Times and Seasons, the Book of Abraham, and he said this, The Lord is blessing Joseph with power to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God, to translate through the Urim and Thummim, ancient records and hieroglyphics, as old as Abraham or Adam, which causes our heart to burn within us while we behold their glorious truths opened unto us. Wilford Woodruff had a really strong, powerful testimony of the Book of Abraham. He believed that it was of God, believed it was true, uh, he published it. It was later canonized by the church. Millions of members of the church today believe in the Book of Abraham. To use President Woodruff's quote, 
it uh, causes many hearts to burn. And yet, reading that quote again, there's an inaccuracy in there, right? We have Egyptologists who can date the papyri to about the time of Christ. They are not, the papyri themselves are not as old as Abraham or Adam. Wilford Woodruff gained a testimony of the book of Abraham, and through that testimony, he also adopted an assumption about the book of Abraham that was wrong. His testimony of the book of Abraham is not invalidated by the fact that he had certain false assumptions about the book of Abraham, and vice versa. The false assumptions about the book of Abraham does not invalidate his testimony of the book of Abraham. And that's it. That's a terrible way to end, but uh, um, I, I recognize that this has uh, been a bit more of a devotional presentation. Uh, I am more than happy to talk all sorts of theories and or questions about the book of Abraham. And let me just reiterate that uh, my theory, my understanding of the book of Abraham is my own. And I recognize that there's all sorts of theories that are um, out there and uh, viable. Yes, right here. Um, as far as research that, that relates to how the content of the book of Abraham, not the translation um, comports with with outside scholarship about Abraham's life if there is in fact anything known about that yeah what kind of sources would you recommend people look at so I am not an ancient historian I'm not an Egyptologist I have done very little um, in looking to the content of the book of Abraham and correlating that with the uh, ancient world um, there have been others who have uh, waded into that, and it's a long um, list of, of historians who have looked to that. Um, there, I, I would focus to the Egyptologists who have done that. So um, there are several individuals at BYU who have uh, done some of that work, John Gee and Carrie Muelstein. Um, Sir? Yes. Can I jump in? Yes. Um, if you're interested in the content of the Book of Abraham, specifically the claims that are made in the text, and you're looking for some type of correspondence or correlation, the direction you want to go is the pseudepigrapha that developed within Egypt and is also found um, in the Ethiopic tradition, specifically texts uh, like the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Testimony of Abraham, both of which uh, were produced during the Ptolemaic or early Roman uh, period, which corresponds to what Labolo found uh, in Egypt, and then as eventually went to Chandler, and then went eventually to Joseph Smith. Uh, and there's a lot of um, interesting parallels between just, just using those two texts. You can also um, look at um, Enoch 1, uh, that will have certain correspondences. Apologies. No, that's fine. So um, this is, right here is kind of is the divide of scholars today. So you have people who are looking to the ancient worlds as content, context for Book of Abraham. And then you have scholars looking to what was available to Joseph Smith in the 19th century as far as pseudepigrapha, other commentaries that uh, Joseph Smith could have drawn upon to uh, create the Book of Abraham. And um, it, it's a rich uh, field, uh, one which I would argue needs to have a lot more work with um, because we don't have enough scholars working on that, though we're, we're getting there. Uh, jo Joseph Smith, we, we, we like to say that Joseph Smith was 
uh, uneducated, ignorant, uh, did, was not aware of uh, certain writings and whatnot, but uh, the more we've uh, investigated that, we meaning the scholarly uh, in, uh, profession, um, the, the more we realize that uh, he's actually a little bit more tuned into that, tapped into that, than we realize. And if you have more questions, you can ask Steve Fleming about some of that over there. There's a comment over here. Yes. Yes. You know, Joseph Smith did a true translation, and we ended up with the translation of the Book of Breathings. I don't think it'd be very inspiring. And so certainly what he ended up with is a truly inspiring, amazing doctrinal treatise that uh, is what we need rather than a translation of the Book of Breathings. But I do have another question. Yes. My, my great-great-great-grandfather is W.W. Films. And he and I think Warren Parrish were, were principals in uh, doing the alphabet and the grammar. What, how did they develop that? Were they, were they also trying to do a real, honest-to-goodness, one-to-one translation? Or what, what was the, the genesis of that? Um, we, we do not have diaries of the day saying, here's our plan for creating an alphabet, um, here's what we hope to accomplish, here's what we felt what we have accomplished. Um, in other words, we have no retrospective accounts telling us what they were planning on doing. All we have are the grammars themselves, um, the alphabets themselves. And um, as evidenced by the different scholars um, interpreting them, um, it's pretty ambiguous as far as uh, how they put them together, what they were hoping to accomplish. According to the sources that I'm seeing, and they're, they're not good sources, I wish we had more, um, that they believed that they were producing something that was of value, not just to members of the church, but to scholars, non-Mormons of the day. In Nauvoo, there seems to be some evidence that they were going to publish the Grammar and Alphabet volume, which why you would publish something that you weren't sure of, or at least uh, thought that it had some value. I, I, I think the fact that they were wanting to publish it meant that they believed that there was some intrinsic value in what they had produced. Um, but yeah, that, asks, that, that leads you to a lot of questions about um, did they really believe that this was, academically speaking, something that could help scholars. Well, I would, if you look forward to Champollion, he died in the 30s, but his work was published posthumously. If you look to Champollion, you realize the stuff they were doing was crazy. Uh, they were making it up, uh, or whatever. That's one thing, but if you look back to the scholars that were making stuff up, whatever, then there's actually a pretty rich, important context there that uh, um, they, they fit within that earlier tradition of trying to understand Egyptian language. But again, this is, this is a direction that scholars need to go more into. Um, and for good or ill, Joseph Smith papers, we publish the texts themselves, what they are, and we, when we don't know about the origin or how they came to be, we just say, we don't know. And all the scholars using our stuff, please find out and let us know, because that, that's great, so. Yes? So neither in Kirtland uh, nor in Western Illinois uh, was the place, you know, either place rife with uh, 
highly qualified Egyptologist, were there people who in his lifetime was telling him, look, uh, you're mistaken, um, and he was uh, answering back and saying, no, I'm right? Uh, no, there, there's nothing explicit like that. So uh, Champollion dies in the eight, early 1830s. Uh, I don't remember exactly when, 32, 33. Um, his, his volume is published posthumously. Uh, this is in French. You have uh, individuals in England doing some of this work. So, so you do have people aware of Champollion, aware of the Rosetta Stone, aware of some of this stuff during Joseph Smith's lifetime. But you do not have, in other words, Joseph Smith is not up to date in his scholarly networks. He's not, he's not writing back and forth with scholars. Well, it does seem strange that he would insist without opposition. You know, that he would, he, he would try to answer a question that hadn't been raised. Someone um, must have been telling him, you know, like, we think you're wrong. Well, the question that he was asking was the question raised by the culture. In other words, um, here we have a civilization that produced hundreds, thousands of papyri that they knew about then. Um, pyramids, what's going on? What, what is the thing that is uh, prompting this civilization to create all this stuff? And Joseph Smith is, is, is looking to that. I'm trying to understand. Um, he, he's trying to give it a go of, of what's going on there. Weren't there six scholars that were shown portions of the Egyptian alphabet that was developed? And e even though they had not been aware of the Rosetta Stone translation, there were scholars in Joseph Smith's lifetime that had inched towards some more reliable translations. And each of these were shown the Egyptian alphabet, and each of these six scholars said, that's not correct. And it was still published in the Times and Seasons, so despite the, that. So I don't have the reference for that, Bob. I think what you're referring to is that when, um, when uh, Joseph Smith purchased the, pap the papyri, he was shown a certificate that Michael Chandler had given him saying these individuals saw the papyri, they authenticated them, they said that these were um, ancient papyri. T to my knowledge, I don't know of any scholar who looked to the alphabet or grammar and alphabet volume um, and authenticated it or did not authenticate it. I I'm, I'm not aware of that. But you mentioned in passing the sounds of the alphabet. Where does that reference come from? How, did, how would they know that? So the alphabet is made up of, um, I showed the characters on one side, the sounds, and then the definitions. Um, there is um, pretty good evidence that uh, many of those, not many, some of those sounds are uh, Hebraic sounds, so Aleph and, and Bet and things like that. Um, there's also, if you look closely, um, uh, some where they take two different sounds combine them together so that they're um, uh, composite sounds essentially um, and then other sounds where we don't know where they're coming from um, in other words the origin of the sounds definitions we, we don't know where they come from where would any of them had come from uh, it, it, it seems to me from a, a non Egyptological perspective that they are coming up with them out of nowhere. Or Th there might, there might revelation. be uh -oh. revelation. Would have to, I mean, that would uh, creative thinking or 
direct revelations kind of those seem to be the options that we have yeah. um the other option that uh is very possible is that he's getting this from uh other commentaries uh reference works that uh, he's reading um that he's pulling from uh other sounds of ancient languages uh in other words he's exploring kind of this intellectual divine approach but we don't know where they're coming from that's probably one of the more amazing things that I saw was just, I mean, to, to come up with the concepts and the ideas and put those down, you know, now you've got the creative thinking and the revelation options, but when you go to sounds, I mean, that's a whole different category. And this raises the issue is that if the alphabet and the grammar and alphabet volume came through revelation, that there's some implication there that could be troubling to some members of the church, right? But. There's a lot of things can always can be troubling, or it can be a faith thing of, yeah. you know, I've seen things where he would see the letter, or, or her discussion about where he would see things written out, and I would think he could hear things spoken as easily as he could see things written. I mean, if you're going to get revelation, you're going to get it however you get it. And, and like I said in the presentation, um, it's very difficult to prove revelation, the origin of revelation, through history. Uh, in fact, I, I would amend that from very difficult to impossible. Revelation yeah. is a matter of faith, right? Um, and you're, you're not going to be able to prove or disprove that through the historical profession. And then I go to my own revelation I've had in my life, and it's like through a complete multiplicity of avenues, and it's all just as valid, but I wouldn't hope to explain it to anybody else. Yeah. Who, who, yes. did, who did Joseph Smith uh, identify the mummies as being? And did he misidentify them? So, um, we, like most sources, don't have anything from Joseph directly. Uh, in other words, we don't have a holograph uh, note. Um, but it's uh, pretty clear that he, he did identify them as various individuals. Um, there are uh, newspaper accounts, uh, Lucy Mac Smith, the mother, a uh, few visitors who um, they're named as various individuals, uh, Katuman as one, there's, there's a few, uh, the, a king. We, of course, uh, don't have the mummies today, um, so it's impossible to definitively identify who they are, but... Uh, could could it, they have been a catalyst to... Have him learn more about someone named King Omidas or Princess Petra. Sure, it's it's a possibility. It, it it's uh, yeah. As as we as as we look to the Book of Abraham, there's there's a lot of theories, a lot of speculation, and uh, ultimately the answer to many of the questions is sure. That's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> um, particularly as. Um, Scholars are open to, uh, or I should say, as members of the church are open to divine intervention, by very definition, anything is possible in divine intervention. So, is that hand in the back? Yes. Well, given that, um, that the translation of the manuscript is not the literal translation, the, the, the actual literal translation of the manuscript, how are the general authorities and the leaders of the church uh, dealing with that? Is, is you know how w what's happening with that? Are they uh, still teaching that? Why is it still in the Book of Mormon? Or is it? And I'm sorry, in the Prophet Christ. 
Um, is it, um, are they de-emphasizing it, or are they addressing it at all, or are they still believing it's, you know, a little translation? Yeah, so, um, I, thankfully, I'm, my, I'm low on the totem pole. My pay grade is such that I don't have to answer those kinds of questions, or I don't, I don't have to think about those kinds of things. Um, there, there is, there is, though, an important shift as I see it, the gospel topics essays that have been published, um, that there is uh, some wiggle room within the Book of Abraham essay, the gospel topic essay, where um, it talks about different theories of how you might approach the uh, Book of Abraham translation. There, there could be the missing papyri theory, the catalyst theory, the inspiration theory, whatnot. And I was reminded um, by Armin Moss that uh, the passage in there um, that uh, speaks to a lot of members of the church is that uh, ultimately um, it's the contents of the book of Abraham um, that will bring people to a testimony of whether it's true or not. That, in other words, as, as people read the text of the book of Abraham, um, that is where I think, as I'm not privy to any of those conversations, that's where I think General authorities, leaders of the church, are focusing. Let's let's read about the uh, the doctrine found in the Book of Abraham. Let's not worry so much about how it originated. Yes. Well, that's an interesting transition because that's kind of where I wanted to go was with the content of the book itself, rather than its origins. Uh, having said that, I've studied it for many many years. I'm actually a protege of Bruce R. McConkie, who was my mission president, hmm. um, and I concur with everything you've said about that. As far as the content itself is concerned, I have a document that was presented by Hugh Nibley many, many years ago, and I can't remember the other side of it, but he compares the Book of Moses to one of the apocryphal books or some other extraneous source, and almost word for word. Hmm. So Joseph Smith did not just create the Book of Moses out of whole cloth. It came from other information, inspiration, whatever it was, we don't think the Book of Moses was a literal translation of anything, and yet it doesn't trouble us that there's information in there. Uh, similarly with the Book of Abraham. You know, the Book of Abraham talking about the origins of the priesthood, the covenants, I mean, those are all critical things to us. But when you get to chapter 3, and of course a lot of people are really troubled by chapter 3, and I've heard many people say, well, we can't interpret that as a scientific text, which obviously we can't, but yet at the same time, as a physicist, I can say, that from quantum physics, cosmology, and information theory, everything in there correlates. There's nothing in there that violates any of the principles that we know today. So I think there's a lot there that can support the plan of salvation model that we have and what it means to us because those things are all came by inspiration anyway. So. Thank you. I don't know that I have much to add to that, but uh, it, I, um, as a, as a documentary editor, I'm, I'm presenting the texts, presenting what's on the page, um, letting others do a lot of the interpretation. Um, and I've said this multiple times, but I really do believe it, that uh, um, if people can build upon the work that we've done um, and espouse their own theories, uh, move the scholarly discussion further, um, then that's the sign of our success. Joseph Smith Papers is a resource for other scholars to... Um, build upon. Um, the quote from Wilford Woodruff about mm -hmm. Abraham, even back to Adam, writing things. Don't you think that could be not literally that that papyrus was written by Abraham, but kind of like the texts we have 
for the Bible manuscripts that they're copies of copies of copies? Yep. That, that it could be that? that, it, that and in fact, you have scholars uh, um, talking about that very thing, that uh, the Book of Abraham could be just copies of copies of copies back to um, the Book of Abraham. And, uh, yeah. Well, even then the quote said records and hieroglyphics. Mm -hmm. Records obviously covers every possible thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Moses theoretically got the book of Genesis from somewhere, uh, which was, you know, he was well after that. Yeah. So obviously there are other things that can lead to that kind of information. Yeah, and we have, uh, we have interpreted, and I realize that I didn't answer all of your question, um, the, the heading to the book of Abraham, um, both when it was published at the time of seasons and the current heading today, it makes it somewhat it's somewhat unambiguous that uh, Joseph Smith taught that the papyri themselves were written, you know, by the hand of, of Abraham. And it's certainly possible that that kind of means that not the actual papyri, but copies of copies of copies. Um, but it does seem that Joseph Smith himself believed that the papyri were as old as uh, Abraham. Um, and so... Again, what does what does that mean? That that particular papyri, <coughs> the, the the papyri yeah. he had were as old as Abraham, um, in the handwriting of Abraham, uh, in the handwriting of Joseph. Now, again, we don't have anything from Joseph himself, really, on the Book of Abraham. So we have to always it's always filtered by other people's accounts. So, in other words, you'd have say someone say, "Oh, I heard from Joseph that he said this about that," or or other types of sources, but uh, yeah, so it gets back to my presentation point of if Joseph Smith really believed that these were papyri written by Abraham, what does that mean? It could be that he just assumed something about the papyri that wasn't actually there. What about the lost papyri? Yeah, lost papyri is, a, is another thing, that, and since it's lost, since we don't have it, we can't study it. Um, it does seem to me, though, that um, we have the facsimiles. We have one of the facsimiles um, from the actual papyri that we have. Mm -hmm. um, the characters I showed you that could be traced to the papyri, we have those papyri. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's absolutely are, true. Are they the characters in that order in the papyri? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it is absolutely true that some of the papyri is missing, that, or rather lost, um, uh, the after Joseph Smith's death, um, Lucy Mack Smith had the papyri. When she died, Emma sold them. Uh, they wound up in Chicago. Um, some of the papyri wound up in Chicago. Uh, the Great Fire um, in the 19th century destroyed uh, the museum that had the papyri. Um, so we know for a fact that there are papyri that Joseph had that we don't have. Right, because I remember somebody said there was like 35 feet in one. Yeah, so there are some sources talking about some of the missing papyri um, that's been interpreted differently and whatnot. Um, but yeah, so th that adds another wrinkle to the discussion of what was on the papyri because with missing papyri, um, we, we, we can, we, we don't know exactly what was on that. So. But, but Robin, as of the date of Abraham, when, when did Abraham live? Approximately 2000 yeah. BC. Okay, 2000 BC. I just uh, was wondering whether we have any evidence that anyone was writing on hieroglyphics on papyri at that time. Hieroglyphics. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, Egyptian. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That that was a thing. They date back that far. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Where <coughs> where does the 
John Key get the idea that that the the scroll was so long that um, you know the horse scroll, the the one that Bexley one was on, Bexley three years ago. But I I think he says in his guide to the Joseph Smith papyri that it was like forty feet long maybe. But I mean, then Chris Smith and uh, Andrew Cook published a paper that said it was like two feet long maximum. Um, and could could the Book of Abraham have fit on a two foot long scroll? Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, th this issue of scroll length is um, I'm I'm doubly penalized because I'm not an Egyptologist and you don't want to know about my math history. So, uh, but there there is, as I understand it, a, a, a formula in which you can calculate the length of a scroll based upon the measurements of folded up. When you when you roll up a scroll and it gets flattened, the the length is at first smaller, but then it gets bigger the more out the scroll you go. Let's see, I'm already explaining this poorly, but uh, and through and through various formulas that are recognized by papyrologists, you can calculate the length of the scroll. So uh, Smith and Cook wrote this article uh, calculating that. Uh, John Gee um, wrote an article correcting their. Um, math arguing that it was actually longer um, there are various sources that their reminiscences it's actually worse than that people remembering someone remembering that they saw papyri being rolled out in uh, the Nauvoo house and, and it's based upon that that they say well if it's if it rolled out in the Nauvoo house then it could be as long as X number of feet I I'm I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm always interested in uh, manuscripts that are lost and what, uh, what could have been. But I, again, point to the fact that the clerks themselves are associating those characters with the Book of Abraham, and those characters are on extant papyri that we have in the church history library. And, and I think that that's a fairly important uh, issue to, to address. Yes? In the one slide you presented, that showed the texts of the Book of Abraham, and it looked like, I couldn't make it out clearly, but to the left side was a demotic, and, and am I interpreting that correctly, yeah. that it would have a demotic notation, and then it would have the text. Yeah. So should that be interpreted as this thing X, and then what follows? Yeah. And then it is in, it's it sequential. Yeah, yeah, and um, I'm glad you, two things, first, I'm not an Egyptologist. I keep talking hieroglyphs. Virtually all of the stuff we're talking about is actually demonic characters, which is different, but that's for Egyptologists to explain. But uh, but yes, um, so the earliest Book of Abraham texts, what you have is the characters on the left hand and then the text of the Book of Abraham. Now, as I look at that, it looks to me that the one character followed by multiple lines of text, I'm left to believe that they associated that those multiple lines of English text with the single character itself. M maybe there are other ways to interpret it, but um, I, I, can't, I can't really see any other way around it than to say that they believe that that single character produced those multiple lines of English text. Is any of this writing in Joseph Smith's handwriting, or is it all in one of the scribes? Because then we can... Say well, this is what the scribe. Yeah. Not, so, not not as a cop out, but yeah. This is you know the scribe was just writing it down, and 
decided to doodle every now and then. No, it's and it, put those things in. It's an important question because Joseph Smith really didn't like writing. He hired scribes and clerks a lot, um, and so. On the one hand, you want to say, um, you know, these are, for the most part, these are clerk's handwriting, so um, we can kind of separate Joseph from the work of the Egyptian language documents. You can't do that for two reasons. The first reason is that um, understanding how Joseph Smith created texts, he's constantly using clerks and scribes. Um, that's just how he does things. The second more importantly, is that one of the alphabets is in Joseph Smith's own handwriting. So it seems that he is engaged in this studying it out in your mind process. Uh, that he himself is, um, if not spearheading, certainly going along with the, the effort to create these alphabet documents. And, and some have argued, well, it's Phelps. Where's our Phelps descendant? It, Phelps is the one doing it all. That seems more like Phelps than Joseph. Well, maybe, but it also seems that uh, Joseph Smith is certainly engaged in, in whatever's going on, um, and that it's quite possible that Joseph Smith is not just involved, but he's, he's spearheading it. But again, we don't have statements from those themselves telling us who's taking the lead. Uh, we just, we don't know the interaction. It would only take like 15 minutes of, as a fly on the wall to kind of get a sense of what's going on. We just don't have that. I wish you'd fallen back on the same answer you gave about the creation of the, the dictation of the Book of Mormon. Well, me, it's gift and power of God. So. <laughs> 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 so you actually raise an important point that um, with the Book of Mormon, it's it's a bit easier to just say, yeah, gift and power of God, because you don't have the plates, you don't have uh, you don't have you don't have the seer stone, you don't have the, the you have the seer stone. You don't have the Urban the, the, the actual how it works with the seer stone. You don't have a video camera of what, what went on. Book of Abraham, I think, is important in the sense that, relatively speaking, it has more of the process of translation than any other project Joseph Smith is doing. In other words, you really do have this dual component of intellectual and divine. You have the Egyptian language documents that document how Joseph Smith is studying it out in your mind. You also have the finished product, the not even the finished product, the divine aspect. And some want to say the intellectual part of the Book of Abraham is complete and total separate from the inspired part of the translation. And I want to argue maybe we need to marry those a little bit more than we have in the past and say that the revelatory process for, for Joseph was not pure inspiration, that he had to put in a little bit of thought. And sometimes that little bit of thought was them not really understanding what's going on. Which again, if you talk to any member of the church, that's how they're going to recognize personal revelation. You put in a little bit of thought, wanting to receive revelation, and you only later realize that your learning, your understanding, your assumptions were not totally um, accurate. But that doesn't in any way invalidate the ultimate revelation. Well, I think there's a couple of things that support that. Uh, our stake theme last year was taught by Sister Julie Beck in 2010. Of course, she said that the ability to qualify for, receive, and act on personal revelation is the most important skill that we can develop in life. Well, skill implies some effort, some work, some practice, digging, 
finding out things, context, putting them all together. Yeah. I think that's what he must have had to do in order to yeah, okay. to put all that in there. Joseph Smith was, yeah, I, I, sh I showed the different images of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon. Um, I, I think members of the church too often assume that he knew what he was doing at all times with regard to revelation, inspiration, leading the church. And that's, I don't think that that's true. I don't think this evidence supports that supposition. I think you're right. It seems to me that to some extent with revelation, it also is helpful to have a focal point. If I'm going to get, if I'm going to translate the Book of Mormon, for example, um, and I'm going to, and it's all going to be by revelation. If I sit down and say, okay, I'm now going to have it revealed, and I'm going to write it down, as opposed to, here's the text, and I'm now going to translate that, and it comes by revelation. So it becomes a focal point where the papyrus, I sort of envision it as somewhat of a focal point of, okay, I'm going to now do something with this, and now I get the inspiration regarding that, and that that's how they somehow get tied together, yeah. just uh, is on, in that attitude of a focal point. Yeah, and I think what you just described there is what some people call the catalyst theory for the Book of Abraham. Um, and I think that that makes a lot of sense in, in some ways, that Joseph Smith is looking at the papyri, using that as a focal point, as a catalyst to receive the revelation. The, the thing that I would say beyond that is that, uh, yeah, maybe Joseph Smith is receiving revelation, but he's adding assumptions about the revelatory process in that. And then, the catalyst theory doesn't really explain very well the Egyptian language documents. Um, and so... Did they serve as a catalyst? Were they a result of the revelation? What, what, what's going on here? So, um, yeah, the catalyst theory helps in a lot of ways, but it also has its own challenges and difficulties. That's, uh, we're getting close to, well, we're past our time. I'll take a question from Armand, and then if, like, if there's one more person that has an, an actual question as opposed to an opinion, I'll take one more. <laughs> if not, we're past our time. Go ahead, I, I would just like to read the final paragraph that you referred to in the topical essay on the Book of Abraham. I think it's brief, but it, it really sums things up in a way that has, satisfies me. It says, the veracity and value of the Book of Abraham cannot be settled by scholarly debate concerning the book's translation and historicity. The book's status as scripture lies in the eternal truths it teaches and the powerful spirit it conveys. The Book of Abraham imparts profound truths about the nature of God, his relationship to us um, as his children, and the purpose of this mortal life. Where is that from? This is from the Gospel essay on Eliot.org. The Gospel Topics essay. Gospel Armand, <laughs> <laughs> you need a Urim and Thummim instead of that darn iPhone. I trust, I don't trust these toys. <laughs> Not a very good fear stone, is it? The truth of the Book of Abraham is ultimately found through careful study of his teaching, sincere prayer, and the confirmation of the Spirit. That's the last thing. Was that the only thing? Was yeah, that's the only thing you missed. There. Yeah, and you know, as I read that, I was impressed that you could pretty much say the same thing about the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Um, yep. Because, you know, we're getting more and more debate about the historicity of that uh, as scripture. Uh, so, again, it, it boils down to what it teaches, 
and how you feel about what it teaches and the question about how it all came where it all came from and who wrote what is beside the point if you think the content is worthwhile yes thank you thank you for that Okay, well... One quick question. Okay, question. Is it fair to say you still have a testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith? <laughs> it, it is fair to say that, yes. Okay. <laughs> Although, that really shouldn't be a question that... I mean, to me, when we have speakers here, we have them for their expertise and not for their testimony. There can be very valuable things come from people who don't have a testimony and uh, very ridiculous things coming from people who do have <laughs> <laughs> And that sums up my presentation. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Podcasts in honor of our 50th anniversary jubilee. If you enjoy listening, please consider becoming a subscriber to Dialogue by visiting dialoguejournal.com or supporting us with a donation. Thank you.